Merry Christmas, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, so glad you're here. Glad you've joined us. Thanks for, for joining us this evening. Can I just say, you're all looking very reddish. Anyway, that, that would be my statement. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. We're going to flash the text right behind us. In case you don't know it, but it's my great pleasure to, to, to remind you, this is peak football viewing season. We have the playoffs coming up, the bowl games, the national championship. But unbeknownst to most of us, way back in April, before the season even started, something happened that went virtually unnoticed uh, by, by most of us, maybe by even most football fans. And here it is. It's something that's turned out to be highly important for the current season. The San Francisco 49ers drafted Mr. Irrelevant. Now, Mr. Irrelevant, of course, is the traditional name given to the last pick each year in the NFL draft. And typically, we understand the last pick is destined for the practice squad or the scout team, or maybe they don't even get that far. They get cut. They are, after all, the last pick, right? Well, this year's Mr. Irrelevant, drafted back in April, was a guy named Brock Purdy. And for most of his life, Brock has had what we would call a, a solid but unspectacular career. He's sort of flown under the radar. He was a great high school player, but high school players are a dime or dozen, sorry, high school football players. Not many offers, though, from the college elite, but he did wind up, landed at Iowa State, where he had a, a pretty, pretty actually really good career, but not so good that people weren't sure that he would even get drafted. And so pick after pick after pick, and this year's draft went by. No Brock Purdy until the very last. There he was, Mr. Irrelevant. Well, he began the year as the third-string quarterback. And if you know anything about quarterbacks who are third-string in the NFL, their job is to wear that hat, right? They have the clipboard, and then they get the crud beat out of them every day in practice. But to the 49ers fans' horror, quarterback after quarterback that were ahead of Mr. Irrelevant began to go down until finally Brock Purdy found himself the starter as a rookie in the National Football League. But not only that, he has proceeded to shock the world by repeatedly winning and has even thrusted the 49ers right into the middle of this year's playoff chase. We're anxious to see what will happen with them in this playoff race. But whether you know it or not, and maybe you're one who doesn't come to church that often, or maybe you do, but you're just not that familiar with the biblical stories. Or even if you're super familiar with the biblical stories, there is a Mr. Irrelevant version in the Christmas story. Someone who is often overlooked, who gets passed over for the, come on, let's be honest, the angels, the shepherds, Jesus, you have to throw him in there, Mary, right? But this person will surprise you with his role in the biblical drama. And of course, I'm talking about the man named Joseph. And so I'm going to read this text. And as I read it, just pick out a few things that you notice about Joseph. It's one of the very few times in all of Scripture that we even hear him mentioned. Matthew 1.18 says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, with sincerest apologies to our worship pastor, Joe Haverlock, I'm entitling this one, Not Your Ordinary Joe, right? Now, that we know so little about Joseph is not surprising. He died before Jesus even began his public ministry, most likely. And up to this point in his life, no doubt, he was, in every sense, Mr. Ordinary. He lived in Nazareth in the region of Galilee. He was probably in his 20s. He was betrothed or engaged to this young teenage girl, Mary, probably in her mid-teens, And remember, in those days, a betrothal was a much bigger deal than an engagement. They were considered legally married, although they did not live together and had not sexually consummated their marriage, which is why it had to be an absolute shock, I'm sure, when it was, and I'm quoting from the text, discovered that Mary was pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say how this went down between Joseph and Mary, but don't you just speculate? Don't you just wonder? Did she come in one day and say, hey, honey, can I tell you what happened to Blake? You you just won't believe what happened today, right? Luke gives us a clue, though, when he says that when Mary did find out she was pregnant, she went to live with her cousin Elizabeth for three months in secret. I think she returned home with the sort of the proverbial baby bump. There was nowhere left to hide, and that's when it all went down with Joseph. And this landed on Joseph hard. Look at the text. It says that he considered these things. It literally means he fiercely pondered. He wrestled. He prayed. He he stayed up late at night trying to figure out what to do. I love this girl, Lord, but um, this is a blatant violation of your law. So it says that he resolved to divorce Mary. Now, it's interesting at this point, Matthew's assessment of Joseph's character. It tells us that, Joseph, that, that Matthew upset, looks at Joseph, looks at his decision to divorce Mary, and calls him a just man. The Greek word is literally righteous. Joseph was a righteous man. And to understand why Matthew calls him that, I think we need to un- understand what this, this phrase means. He resolved to divorce her, divert, divorce her quietly. Divorce, make no mistake, is what the law of God called for. This was a blatant violation of God's moral law. God led his people into the Holy Land and said, be holy as I am holy. And so for Joseph to willingly marry an adulteress would communicate to everyone that Joseph obviously did not take the word of God seriously. He did not take the holiness of God seriously. This was a man On the other hand, who was seeking to please God. And so I think Matthew calls him righteous for that reason. But there's a second reason too, I think. It says that he resolved to divorce Mary quietly. 
See, this could have been and often was a very public thing. This would have been something for the religious tribunal for the elders and the Pharisees of the village. This would have been an opportunity for Joseph to present himself as righteous, to protect his reputation, to show, hey, I did not have anything to, to, to do with this. That, that, this would have allowed Joseph, right, to, to move on, to, to marry someone else, to carry on his life. But it says he didn't want to shame her. I think he, he deeply loved her, but he didn't want to embarrass her, didn't want to ruin her life any more than she had already ruined his life. So he revolved, resolved to divorce her quietly. Isn't it interesting the way truth and love in these biblical characters so oftentimes comes together. Now, you may not know this. I did not know this, so certainly you shouldn't know this, okay? I'm just kidding. As I was studying this, this passage, I found out in actuality, God or God through a messenger of an angel appeared to Joseph no less than four times in the biblical narrative. Nobody in scripture gets four dreams, right? Maybe Daniel got three, um, the apostle John got several, but you get the idea. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph four times. And here in this first dream that Joseph has, he, the angel appears and says, Joseph, no, no need to worry. No, Mary has not been unfaithful. Do not fear. Take her as your wife. This, what is in her is from the Holy Spirit. And what is interesting about every single time that we see Joseph mentioned in the biblical narrative, and it's very few times, but there are four different dreams. Go read it um, over Christmas. It concludes every episode with this, with this phrase or something like it. And it says, and Joseph obeyed. Or Joseph did what he was commanded. Now, now, now why does Matthew particularly make special mention of Joseph's, Joseph's faith and obedience. And it reminds us something, Four Oaks, about the purpose of these birth narratives. We are not here on Christmas Eve to be distant observers. This is not merely a trip down memory lane or nostalgia. Matthew is writing to put before us a decision. Just as Joseph was pressed with the decision of what is he going to do with this most supernatural, miraculous birth that was presented to him, how will he respond? The same issues before us, how will you respond? See, we're, we're not merely meant to just sort of acknowledge these things like they're myths or story, tale, story, story um, nursery rhymes or Good Richard's Almanac, or something that inspires us, some mythology. This is truth. This is history. And just as Joseph was confronted with a choice, we are confronted with a choice too. What are we going to do with this Savior? Now, as you consider your response, there's three things in this dream that Joseph had to wrestle with before he could come to Jesus. And make no mistake, Joseph was one of the very first converts of Christianity. He was one of the very first to entrust himself to the promises of God about this child. And these three things that he had to wrestle with are the same things, three things that we have to wrestle with. And I just want to mention them very quickly. 
Very grateful for Tim Keller and his insights on this passage. And here are three things, and let's do them quickly one at a time. Number one, following Jesus means opening ourselves to opposition. Now, we need to understand the magnitude of what God is asking Joseph to do here. You see, divorce would have been the easy way out. Joseph could have maintained his reputation. But going through this marriage to Mary, however, let's make no mistake, would have been very costly indeed. Either he was going to be ridiculed for marrying someone who had run around on him. How could you be so stupid, Joseph? How could you let her run over you and then you're vowing to care for her out of wedlock child? Joseph would have been, Joseph would have been mocked or he would have been shamed for committing adultery with Mary outside the bounds of marriage. Either way, Four Oaks, make no mistake, Joseph would have had to come to terms with the fact that his life was about to dramatically change. In fact, some of the things in his life were about to get a lot harder. And if you've read the Gospels, you know that this question of Jesus' lineage and who his real father was, it followed Jesus around his entire ministry. It was always in the air. And it undoubtedly followed Joseph. It attached itself as a stigma. This was going to be a costly piece of obedience for this man. Because we've talked about deconstruction before, and deconstruction is just a, a fancy postmodern word for walking away from the faith. And when I think about the wave of deconstruction that has sort of swept over the church, at least in North America, I wonder, I wonder how much of it is due to the fact that we have overpromised, or, or, or let me put it this way, we have promised the wrong things for those who would come and follow Christ. Follow Jesus, we might say. He'll fix your problems. He'll give you a better life, a happier marriage, obedient children, a healthy body. He'll give you a successful business, a great vocation. But when the bottom drops out, which it always does in a broken world, have you noticed that? People walk away disillusioned, heartbroken, because they've embraced a faith that has promised the wrong thing. Maybe you can relate to that. When in reality, embracing Jesus has countless benefits, eternal benefits, which we're going to talk about here, but, but make no mistake, embracing Jesus oftentimes means embracing the path of suffering. It means walking as Jesus walked. It means knowing Christ in his sufferings. Just as no servant is greater than his master, those who would pick up their cross and follow Jesus, it will make a claim in this life. And to say otherwise is to not preach the biblical gospel. Jesus, Joseph had to reckon with this, church. Jesus was not coming to fix all of his problems. In fact, there's going to be a lot of ways his life was going to become much harder and much more complex. Jesus does not promise to fix all of our problems in this life. Following him mean, might mean opening ourselves up to opposition. But what he does give us an abiding sense of is what we'll get into in this point number two. So if following Jesus means 
opening ourselves to opposition. Second point, following Jesus means admitting our helplessness. There's a common understanding, you've probably heard this before, among Jews at the time, that the Messiah who was coming was going to be a conquering king. Israel had spent three quarters of a millennium, not a century, a millennium, under somebody's oppression, whether it was Babylonian, Persian, Greek, or in the present day when Matthew was writing, Roman. In other words, they were not a free people. And they envisioned the Messiah as someone who was going to come and put his foot on the back of all these blasted Romans. He was going to be the conquering Messiah king, and he was going to show the world how awesome Israel was. Now, the reason people love this vision is the same reason that we love that kind of vision, right? We love riding with a winner. We, we love getting on the coattails of a front runner. We love to be on the side of the victor, the, the reigning power, the conquering king. But here is what Joseph had to wrestle with, and it's what we, had to, we have to wrestle with. That's not what the angel says is the reason Messiah is coming. Do you notice that? Look back at the text. He says, Jesus is coming, Joseph, not to free you from your political oppressors, but to save his people from their sins. Because this has, had to be a Copernican revolution of the mind of Joseph. For him to come to realize, you know what, my biggest problems, in fact, are not out there. The angel is saying that my biggest problems are in here, in my heart. You see, so oftentimes we think, Pastor Paul, if someone, something could just fix this mess in our lives, fix this mess in our nation, fix this mess in our culture, fix our mess in this world, we would be good. And Four Oaks, what God, the gospel tells us is that we would not be good. Because Joseph's biggest problem, Israel's biggest problem, and our biggest problem is not cultural, it's not political, it's moral. Our biggest problem is our sin. If our biggest problem wasn't our sin, then the angel would not have said, this is why Jesus is coming, to cleanse you from your sins. See, our sin, not what's happening out there, there's plenty of sin there, but what's happening in here has separated us from our holy God. And we need a grace, we need a mercy, we need a covering, we need forgiveness. And if you are going to come to Christ just as Joseph was wrestling about coming to Christ... You're going to have to recognize, and this is so hard for us, especially as independent Americans, we're going to have to recognize we're not good enough. We cannot save ourselves. And guys, this is so much harder than when we think, right? It's very hard to admit our helplessness. See, admitting our helplessness means we have to give up control, and to give up control means that we're letting go of our claim of self-determination or using our own standard of measurement to decide how good we are or how not good we are. And Jesus wants to make very clear, Matthew does here through Jesus, he's coming to save you. He's not just coming to save you from the sin of your oppressors. He's coming to save you from your sin. And so following Jesus means... Opening ourselves to opposition, it means admitting our helplessness, and lastly, and then we'll be done, following Jesus means submitting 
to his lordship. The text tells us that the angel told Joseph what he was to name the baby. Joseph, you're to name the baby Jesus, which means our God saves. Now, why was that such a big deal? It seemed like an honor, right, for the angel or for God to name your baby. Well, imagine when Susan and I had our, our first baby, if the attending nurse or doctor came around and asked us what we wanted to put on the birth certificate. And we gave them the name, and they said, no, we don't think you should put, put the name James Kelly Gilbert. That's our one boy. We think you should put the name Tom Cruise, right? To which I might say, I understand why you would make that mistake. I look like Tom Cruise, okay? Um, he is destined to be as awesome as Tom Cruise, but, but understand, we're not naming him Tom Cruise, right? We're not going to put the mark of Cain on him. We are, we're, we're, we'll name him what we want to name him because, after all, what? We're his parents. See, in just in our modern culture, just like in the ancient culture, the right of naming something conferred authority. It conferred ownership. When the angel tells Joseph what to name the child, what is he saying? He's saying, Joseph, you're not in charge here. Joseph, you are a man under authority. Joseph, you've been praying for a king, and I have one for you. Joseph, to be a part of the Jesus story means that you are not your own. You have a new master, a new Lord. His name is King Jesus. So you have to submit to him. Let me ask you a question tonight, folks. What is it, if there is something, that's keeping you from Jesus. I, I'm very well aware on a night like tonight, for some of you, this is a very ceremonial thing. It's something you do, you come with family and friends, and you drive around after the service to find a restaurant that will be open, which it won't be. Okay, let me just warn, I can tell you that, I've done this so many times, right? It's, but when you think about what, what, what this is, for some of you, it's ceremonial, but inwardly, you're just not going there. And I don't know what the, is at the root of that, whether it's bitterness, disappointment, but I think I can say this. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever's keeping you from Jesus, I don't think is primarily a philosophical question or an apologetic question or a metaphysical question. The thing that's really keeping you from Jesus, it keeps us all from Jesus is a real spiritual question, is a real moral question. Am I, willing, am I willing to relinquish my life to the Savior? Am I willing to entrust myself to another? You see, in order for Jesus to be your Savior, make no mistake, he first has to be your king. See, the king is coming to make things right, and we love a king who does that, who invokes righteousness, who punishes the wrongdoers, and it sounds great, until we realize we're part of that judgment as well. Our only hope is to entrust ourselves to this king, to, to cling to him, to cry out to him for grace and mercy and peace, which he is so eager to give. He is so eager. Do you know this, that Jesus, King Jesus, who's reigning right now in heaven, he's not in, the, he's not in the manger, he's on the throne. He is so eager to 
take away our sin, to restore us to right relationship with him, and to be our gracious, loving, benevolent king forever. What's keeping you from Jesus? Because if, if, this, if this is in any way sparked your conscience or spoken to your heart, don't leave here tonight without talking to one of us. There'll be some pastors and elders here up front. Don't let this just pass by. It's simply another nostalgic marker on a Christmas Eve in the year 2022. Make no mistake, there is a call in this passage, a claim that it makes, that Jesus Christ in the manger is indeed Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, who calls you to himself. Let's pray.